This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from our extended fall hiatus with a special program recorded remotely in Kansas City. And as we sometimes do, we feature a different perspective, this time a view on the U.S. elections from Cuba, plus insights into education in South America. But first, Jim Singer is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Venezuela politicians set aside some of their differences this week and agreed to mediation from the Vatican. This follows a surprise meeting between President Nicolas Maduro and Pope Francis. The National Assembly agreed to postpone a debate and trial over whether Maduro can be impeached. However, Freddy Guevara, one of the opposition leaders in the assembly, still wants the president removed. President Nicolas Maduro is operating outside the Constitution, and the National Assembly needs to charge him and preserve our country. We should convoke a nationwide protest and march on the National Palace. Opposition leaders also called off such a march as part of the effort to reach an agreement through the Vatican's mediation. Maduro canceled efforts for a recall vote, although millions of Venezuelans signed petitions to have him removed from office. Venezuela's constitution allows for such a recall election, but the president has ordered that it will not be allowed. Venezuela is suffering through a depression with hyperinflation and shortages of food and medicine. Former presidents throughout Latin America are facing a wave of prosecutions against corruption. And Argentina's Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner is the latest to make an appearance in the court this week. Prosecutors say Fernandez laundered money for at least one influential business leader who supported her party. A judge froze her assets this summer to prevent ways to hide these financial dealings and to keep her from shipping funds out of the country. Hundreds of supporters of Fernandez clashed with police outside of the courthouse, showing their support for the former president. Fernandez says the charges are political, and she asked for the charges to be dismissed. Prosecutors in El Salvador are also playing tough with their former president, Tony Saca. Prosecutors say Saka embezzled more than $240 million when he ran the country. This week, they have searched his homes and businesses looking for more evidence. Saka's presidential term ended seven years ago. Former President Mauricio Funes fled the country this summer and successfully was granted asylum in Nicaragua, also due to a corruption probe. Catholics in Uruguay are celebrating what they call a miracle the return of a famous religious statue after a typhoon. The statue is of the Virgin Mary, referenced locally as Our Lady of Candle area. The huge windstorm and tidal surge destroyed the shrine for the statue on the coast. But days later, surfers found the body of the statue floating in the Atlantic Ocean and returned it to shore. Others found the head of the statue washed up on some rocks on the coast. The two pieces are now reunited, and many in Uruguay are thankful that the statue will be back on the shore when the shrine is rebuilt. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Thanks, Jim. Our shout-out goes to our listeners in Spain. Even though we've been offline for more than a month, our Spanish listeners keep tuning in to our archival programs. Our listening group in Spain was second only to our listeners in the U.S., so we say mil gracias, to all of our Spanish listeners, 
and to our listeners elsewhere around the globe. And now, as promised, a Cuban perspective. This week, we feature the viewpoints of Santiago Perez Benitez, a professor at the University of Havana, a visiting professor this fall at Webster University, and the assistant director of Cuba's Center for International Political Research. We spoke to him on Webster University's St. Louis campus about the new diplomacy between the U.S. and Cuba and how important the U.S. presidential elections will be for that changing relationship. It all depends on the result of the U.S. elections, but uh, I would say that um, it's been a very positive turn of the of the events between Cuba and, and the U.S. because uh, we are neighbors. We share a lot of things in common, Cuban society and U.S. society. Uh, uh, talking about baseball, talking about academic exchanges, talking about uh, hurricane preparations and information. So historically and culturally and due to our proximity geographical, we have a lot of things in common. It's been a pity that we have lost 50 years uh, due to 10 U.S. Um, administrations trying to uh, to, to not to recognize the Cuban government. Uh, there was a break of, of diplomatic relations. There was the imposition of a U.S. embargo in 61. <clears throat> you know, all the, all the history we had, we, we shared together, Bay of Pigs, etc. So uh, President Obama did a very important uh, move in terms of, uh, of Cuba and also in terms of Latin America to first to recognize uh, the, the Cuban government and to establish diplomatic relations saying that uh, the U.S. policy of the form of the previous 10 administrations didn't work, and it didn't work. So uh, according to the, to, the, to the objectives that, that the U.S. administration had put themselves, so now it was time in the Obama world to change the methods, not the objectives. But the methods are important. It, it does count. It's not the same to be under under a kind of uh, very aggressive rhetoric and aggressive uh, measures than to, to to follow another way of, of establishing. So the, the, the idea of the Cubans is to have uh, formal relations and very cooperative relations with the U.S. administration in general, with, with the U.S. government in general, including Congress and other areas of, of the establishment, and also with the U.S., uh, <coughs> with American society, which they're very, as I, as I told before, very good uh, relations. Always you have to, to take care because uh, if the objectives are the same and the methods are different, you understand that uh, you have also to take care of the other methods, which is mainly uh, what they call two-track policy in terms of uh, encouraging changes in Cuba in terms of uh, using funds that for any government would be unlawful uh, to channel funds in order to uh, influence uh, domestic politics in Cuba but you know it's part of the part of the of the debate part of the of the interaction and also this uh, this time after the the establishment of diplomatic relations have been very useful because there is an ongoing dialogue uh, there have been eight visits of the Cuban ministers, U.S. secretaries, Secretary of State was there, as you mentioned, President Obama was there, so it's, it's ve been very high-ranking uh, visits. And also, <coughs> there has been a, 
collaboration in the, the area of uh, healthcare, collaboration in the area of, um, a, of domestic flights, to US uh, general flights to, the, to Cuba. And also there is going on kind of what, what we call together dialogue which is a dialogue on, on different issues, in, for example, human rights issues, for example, of dialogue in terms of the compensations um, that American companies lost in, in Cuba, and Cubans have certain demands to the, to the U.S. government for all these years. Uh, so this dialogue on different issues are very, are very also useful, at least to hear one other's perspective, because it's not one-way uh, relationship, it's, it's two-way, it's both ways. And uh, till the time being, knowing the, the difficulties, because we are still, Cuba is still under, under embargo laws, and uh, Guantanamo naval base is still there, contrary to the, to the Cuban people and Cuban government uh, uh, desires, but uh, those are things that have to, can be can be uh, dealt uh, in a positive way, less than other ways which were very uh, hostile. You mentioned um, that the U.S. election is going to make a big difference in 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 what we see in the future regarding U.S.-Cuban relations. And so, is the supposition that if uh, former Secretary of State Clinton, if she is elected, that we will see a continuation of the Obama policies, and if she is not, that we may go back to this Cold War type of relationship? Well, if uh, former Secretary of State, um, Secretary Clinton, is elected, I, I agree with you. I think that there is going to be the continuation of those, uh, of the cooperation, of the relationship Secretary Clinton has uh, written in his book, Hard Choices, uh, and uh, in his uh, uh, statements that uh, she would uh, be in favor of lifting the, the embargo. It depends on the U.S. Congress, you know, because it's since 1996 there was Hans-Burton Law, which established that to change uh, the Cuban policy, major, major aspects of it, uh, you should go to Congress, and Congress since now has been um, very opposite. To the not not a not a whole Congress, but influential Cuban American lawmakers and some other Republican um, congressmen. But uh, in general, uh, we expect the continuation of those um, uh, conversations and that uh, cooperation. Uh, the argument being made by the Obama administration and uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, possible future policy is that uh, establishing uh, cooperation, increasing the, the dialogue with the Cuban people, with the Cuban society, um, enabling the possibility of, of Cuban-American community go there and Cubans from the island coming to Miami, to the U.S. Itself, it would generate a movement in terms of changing the, the government, which ultimately is being the, the U.S. government. Uh, Interest and positions, but let it be. That's 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 a that's a question to be uh, analyzed in, in in the future. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't agree with that, but you know it's 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 part of the established um, U.S. policy. It's the same that as if the Cubans 
would think in terms of changing uh, domestic uh, system in, in the United States uh, or any Latin American country. So that's not, that's not good in terms of principles of international relations. You have to respect sovereignty, etc. But, but uh, it's, it's part of the whole strategy. And uh, yes, if, if uh, Secretary Clinton is elected and uh, the advisors and the people uh, around her, which, are, which could be people similar to what those who have been with, with Obama, then, then I foresee the continuation of, of that relationship. Maybe there would be certain setbacks because when you have uh, an ongoing relationship, it's very rich, it's very broad. Sometimes you will have some problems. Sometimes then there you could expect certain hardening in terms of uh, U.S. policy demands of internal changes in Cuba, but that, that will be part of the, of the relationship. I always say uh, that uh, it's very, very difficult to have normal relations with the, with the, the U.S. administration. Look at, for example, the case of Mexico. Look at, for example, the case with uh, Central American countries, with all Latin American countries, because uh, it's pretty complicated uh, in, in terms of how to deal with the U.S. It's, it's, it's very complex uh, policymaking. Then you have lobby groups, you have uh, Congress, you have uh, administration, you have bureaucracies which are still in place that, if, that exert an, an influence. If there is to be a change in terms of, 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 the, of the White House, in, if there is to be a Trump administration, I would, I am not, I am not able right now to predict <laughs> what, what's, what's happened. Uh, at least what we have for now is uh, uh, first the position of, of Mr. Trump instead of saying that it was fine, the change of Obama uh, foreign policy towards Cuba, because it's, uh, as a pragmatic businessman, if anything hadn't worked for 50 years, why not to change it? So he said that, uh, he declared that it was, it was good, it was positive, that he would have uh, negotiated the settlement or the agreement with the Cuban uh, authorities um, in, in, a best, in a better way for the U.S. interest. That would but, but in general, positive uh, looking perception of, of the changes in Obama administration policy. Uh, two weeks ago, there was a statement in, in Miami pandering to the right wing of Cuban American establishment uh, in, in the city, and you know that Florida is a swing state, uh, in which he said that uh, what Obama did was based on executive orders that he could repeal those orders if he gets to the, to the White House. And uh, put the condition that he can do that uh, unless the, US, uh, the, the Cuban government makes uh, dramatic changes in, it, in its, its internal domestic policy. But so you have these two statements. Um, pretty much I'm afraid that uh, Senator Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, Cuba in the last years have been specializing in exporting uh, Republican candidates to the, to the U.S. political sense because, uh, you know, Marcos Rubio's father and he himself was born in Cuba and Ted Cruz's um, father also is, is Cuban. There is another senator, uh, Bob Menendez from New Jersey, uh, and there is the, the three representatives from Cuban origin, all, all of them are Republican, right-wing, uh, and 
anti-normalization uh, of, of relations with Cuba that they could um, create uh, a lobby and, and other uh, Republican um, congressmen and senators out of solidarity, right, could, uh, could be in favor of, uh, of uh, stressing the pressure upon the Cuban government and Cuban society. And might be there could be some setbacks. My perception is that things have gone uh, pretty well, pretty fast, that it's already very difficult for any U.S. Republican administration to say, okay, we're going to break relations with Cuba. That wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't expect that. Also in terms of, uh, of withdrawing its, its, his embassy, its embassy in, in Havana, I think that the U.S. is going to be there. It's, it's um, beneficial for the U.S., it's beneficial for the Cuban government and, and the Cuban people. And also there are a lot of co cooperation agreements going on that I don't expect them to be reversible. But yes, in the political area, uh, there could be setbacks if the line to be taken is on that on that strategy of more pressing, of more of trying to reverse what we have reached. Thank you. Santiago Perez Benitez, our guest today on Latin Pulse. He is a professor at the University of Havana and the assistant director of CIPI, the Center for International Political Research in Cuba. Thanks again for being our guest. Thank you. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Professor Perez from Cuba later this fall. Coming up, dissecting education and language in South America. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. This past year, Webster University's DJ Kaiser has had the opportunity to tour South America, lending school systems his expertise in how to teach English as a second language. His stops included Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, Peru, and other locations. We spoke to Kaiser about his educational journey to South America on Webster University's campus in St. Louis. But in particular, one thing that, that struck me from hearing your stories is the Southern Cone isn't just doing a lot with computers and getting computers to students, but it's also doing a lot with English as a language for those students to use both in their computing and in the classroom. And I wonder why you think that's the trend. Well, that's a good question. A lot of us talk about the digital divide and those that have access to computers and those that do not. And I like to sometimes talk about the English divide, those that have access to English and know enough English to access additional information and those who do not. Uh, you can give people access to computers, but if more and more of that information is available in English, especially when it gets to research that is being published, knowledge of English becomes necessary for that. And that's what a lot of countries are, are figuring out is in order to play a role in the exchange of knowledge and sharing the knowledge and research that they're doing, they need English to do that. What differences would you see in the system to bring English 
to students in Uruguay compared to Brazil? There are differences, no? Yes. Well, one of the things with Uruguay is partially because it's such a small country, but partially because of, of the history of its politics, their policies are very centralized. So you've got one Ministry of Education, ANEP, and uh, they, they set the guidelines for the entire country. Whereas in Brazil and Argentina, it's not a national curriculum. You will have individual states or provinces will have a say in, in what goes into education, similar to the United States, where individual states have a say on what can be and what is taught. So in that regard, I'm, I'm curious about what you think is the thinking behind these programs, different programs in Brazil than in Uruguay, but both we see people in government, whether it's local government or national government, making decisions to, to give students different opportunities. It's a complex thing and there, there are many aspects that go into it. Part of it is just a general shift from, if you look at South America, French was the language, the, the foreign language that most people studied. It, that was considered the lingua franca of educated people and that has shifted to English. Now the question has become, when do you introduce English? How early do you introduce it? Uruguay was not, historically was not teaching English in the elementary schools, it was in the secondary schools. There were some experiments to teach it in primary schools. But then when I went to Argentina and found out that they were starting English in, I think, kindergarten. And that's just, you know, if you're in Montevideo, that's right across the Rio de la Plata, is that's quite a leg up on, on starting your English. Uh, Brazil also, they would start in elementary school. So I think part of it becomes a comparison to your neighbors of what are they doing and, and how can we adjust our policies. Part of it also comes down to, to pure politics. Uh, there was a, a great article I read uh, that focused on by uh, Germán Canale, where he was looking at the discourse of talking about English and, and why English should be studied in different public policies and, and different candidates and, and sort of shifts in, in the reasons why. So there are ways to see English as this, this useful tool, but also as a way to market yourself as a candidate, to, to market businesses. Uh, I mean, this is what I do for a profession, but I also have to acknowledge that it's not all it's not all positive, but it's definitely not all negative. So what in that description do you find to be negative? Is it, is it a loss of, of cultural culture in, in language? Well, especially when you look at South America. So one of the things I quickly learned in Uruguay is that it is not a monolingual country. So here I went in and, and thought, okay, this is just a Spanish-speaking country, and I got to spend two weeks living in Rivera, which is, I was literally three blocks from the Brazilian border, and I could walk right across the border without a passport. There was no control uh, of any kind. So there's free passing back and forth between Brazil and Uruguay, 
and the amount of Portuguese you hear in Uruguay up in the north is amazing. What happens when you make English a, a state-mandated second language, what does that do to minority languages? So in Uruguay, Portuguese is a minority language. And if you take a look at, um, well, uh, Brazil has numerous indigenous languages, but I have yet to see policies in Brazil that protect indigenous languages. Paraguay has two official languages, but uh, with Spanish and Guarani, what when I remember when I went, I crossed the border into um, Ciudad del Este, uh, the second largest city. I never saw a single sign in Guarani. So you can have policies for protecting indigenous languages, but then the question becomes what's considered more practical. So in Peru, English was what people would be speaking that uh, they were using for tourism, even though there are laws that protect indigenous languages. So this, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but I, I got to jump around the continent a bit and, and learn bits and pieces of the implications. So I, let me try to clarify here. You said originally that for a long time French was the mandated second language or the de facto second language that many people would go to in the region, I guess for diplomatic reasons, and people would say the same thing in the United States maybe 50 years ago. But I, I wonder now, the shift to English, is it all business and technology and politics? Are those the three driving forces behind that change? There are a lot of factors that have shifted the world towards English. So technology, business, uh, political relations, uh, Today, English is, is seen as, as a more practical language. Some people see it as a neutral language. Other people would debate that as to whether or not it's neutral. So we're talking about cultural imperialism there? Yes, there's, uh, there's this great book by um, Robert Philipson called Linguistic Imperialism. And uh, Philipson focuses on uh, English and the spread of English across the world in linguistic imperialism. There are other forms of linguistic imperialism with other languages, but English is really the one that's dominating the world. You also were in lots of different classrooms during your trip, and you noticed some trends that might surprise people in the United States when we talk about education writ large, not just when we're talking about linguistic and education. Right, the, the first thing I I found uh, very different from what I was used to is in the Uruguayan public schools for primary school, uh, grades one through six, it's a four-hour school day in about 90% of the schools. So children will go to school from eight till noon or from one to five p.m. So children then have the, the other half of the day where they're not in school. What do you think about those schools? Different way to do things? Does, does that mean there are more homework projects or, or other things that the students are doing that are helpful to them? I mean, the word that I would hear a lot is desafio. Desafio is challenge. Uh, and that just, it was a favorite word just everywhere I went. Uh, so it was a challenge to try to cover uh, as much of, as you could of a curriculum in a, a 20 hour school week 
which one teacher told me it's not really 20 hours it's 15 hours because you've got recess and uh, the passing periods so I think that's one of the biggest issues is how do you get enough instruction in there another issue is having enough school buildings and then also having enough teachers well thank you so much and thank you so much for sharing these stories with us today our guest today on Latin Pulse DJ Kaiser professor at Webster University thank you thank you thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse recorded this week remotely from Kansas City we hope to be back to you online again next week from our home studios in St. Louis if you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email you can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv, dot org, slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks to the production assistance this week from Sarah Boyd from Kansas City. For associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music